Progress Report is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network. A new podcast on the network that I want to talk about is the latest from Full of Chit Chat, where Charlie Demers welcomes thinking persons rock star Hawksley Workman for a conversation on uncoolness, the bespoke 1980s, and what the internet is doing to our brains one click at a time. And that's just one show. There's a ton of other great shit on Harbinger, and I can't say enough how much of a fantastic project it is. So get access to exclusive shows and other supporter-only content at harbingermedianetwork.com. Now, on to the show. Friends and enemies, welcome to The Progress Report. I am your host, Duncan Kinney, recording today here in Amiskwichiwiskaigan, otherwise known as Edmonton, Alberta, here in Treaty 6 territory on the banks of the Kasiskasawanisipi, or the North Saskatchewan River. Joining us today is The Progress Report's original guest, the very first one, Shama Rangwala. Shama, welcome back. Welcome back to the pod. Hey, it's really great to be here. I'm so excited to have been the first person and to be back now, so thanks. Yes, seventy from episode one to episode seventy-seven. It's like I love that we have this like bench of people uh, who can come on the pod, who are like friends of the pod, and it's uh it's really great. And so you have, and since we last spoke on the pod, you are now uh, an assistant professor of humanities at York University. So congratulations on that as well. Thank you. And I will say, I think I was one of the first um, monthly donors to Progress Alberta when you started doing that too. So I feel like I've been kind of a supporter of this for, for a while. So yeah, happy to a be here. True, a true, a true friend of the pod. <laughs> yes. And so, uh, and job security too, now that you're officially like yes, yes. Professor, <laughs> you, you can, you can afford that, that $5 a yeah. month or whatever it is you give. So yeah. it's like, yeah. you're not on that sessional bullshit anymore. <laughs> Uh, but the reason why we brought you on today after 76 episodes of, of interlude is, uh, you are a humanities professor and specifically you study culture mm-hmm. and, and the, you know, we just like just this past week, the first anniversary of George Floyd's murder at the hands of Minneapolis police was marked. And it really is kind of wild what we have kind of seen happen in a year. You know, the people of Minneapolis burned a police station to the ground. You know, we have seen uh, the rallying cry of kind of Black Lives Matter and defund the police taken up across uh, North America, even here in Edmonton, where we live. Um, I mean, we've also seen the forces of reaction and like elites and like, you know, capitalism is so adaptive that that, like the struggle Mm -hmm. has been co-opted by brands and celebrities. We've seen defund the police walk back and defanged by liberals. But really, I, I think we're at a place now where the daily reality of the racist violence, the murder, the dehumanization that black and brown people uh, and indigenous people face every day by the police has now been made even more clear to the kind of like general white public, right? Yeah, so my work is on adaptation and the kind of adaptations of racial capitalism and as they're manifested in culture. And so when this happened a year ago, this seemed to a lot of us who, you know, think about crisis and think about the ways that critique is 
you know, co- co-opted by culture, by, you know, the forces of, of racial capitalism, that burning down a police station was something that maybe could not be co-opted, or that this kind of mass uprising that was global during a pandemic would not be co-opted. And I still think that there was a kind of uh, rupture that happened there that we are still reckoning with. But I mean, what we have seen over the last year is all the ways that it actually can be co-opted or the ways that, um, you know, the U.S. presidency election, how that kind of contained the critique of of that event last summer, how culture, um, you know, like we're going to talk about some pop culture today, um, how that has tried to address um, this really kind of, un, we say unprecedented a lot this year, but I never thought I would see a police station uh, burned, a U.S. police station uh, burned down, you know on live TV. And so there, there's some things that can be kind of neutralized from that event, but there are some things I think that will still escape from that and where we, we don't know. Um, we don't, we are still kind of reckoning with that. Yes. And so, you know, when we talk about reaction and adaptation and how this stuff is, has been able to be deflected. I mean, uh, the thing, the first thing that came up to mind when you brought up Biden was the, the Black Lives Matter Twitter account, like the official, official Black Lives Matter Twitter account saying like, we won after the election or whatever, uh, which is like, oh my God. But the, the reason why, one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why uh, you know, this this struggle for Black liberation and this struggle to kind of defund and abolish the police has uh, been co-opted and, and been kind of like, you know, trying to, where it's been run up, run up against the forces of reaction mm-hmm. is the the reason why we are talking today and the, the what we want to get into in this podcast, which is, you know, copaganda, you know, the yeah. overwhelming amount of positive press uh, that the police are able to generate in order to justify their existence. Yeah, and and we've needed propaganda. The we here just being kind of settler culture um, has has used propaganda, propag- uh, you know, for for a very very long time. But one of the things we can think about is is how has this changed um, over you know the course of. Uh, the different kinds of ways that, you know, anti-Black violence, like the period of slavery, Jim Crow, mass incarceration has changed. How has propaganda changed in these ways, too? And so, um, you know, thinking about propaganda, again, I think, you know, it's okay. It's okay to like shows with cops in it. I think that, you know, we both, we watch what we watch and, you know, entertainment is entertainment, um, but it's good to be critical about it. And so one of the things that I wanted to uh, bring up is uh, just a a little bit of uh, leftist theory, um, which, you know, is, is kind of what I do. And when we're thinking about culture and what culture does, like what is this relationship between culture and capitalism? Um, one of the OGs, like really kind of founding people of, um, you know, thinking about cultural studies in this way is Theodore Adorno. And so, you know, some listeners might have, have heard him. He's really memeable. Uh, but yeah, he and um, Max Horkheimer wrote this article in the 40s uh, on the culture industry. And with Adorno, you know, he he came from Germ- Nazi Germany and, uh, you know, went, went to the to California and s- saw that 
actually propaganda functions in liberal democracy in similar ways, even though, of course, you know, they're very like real material differences between Nazi Germany and California of the 40s. But, you know, in his work, he argued that this kind of culture industry is just a sort of like pacifying uh, force in culture to get us to accept our subjugation within capitalism. So, um, you know, one of the lines I really like of his work is Donald Duck gets his beatings on screen, so we more readily accept uh, ours. <laughs> and so, you know, if you look at some of those, they're on YouTube. They're kind of like great to watch. There's one De Fuhrer's face. There's one where Donald, which is like, a, you know, the end of it is like, so Donald Duck has this dream that he's like a Nazi worker or something. And then he wakes up back in the U.S. and he's like, it was all a dream. But there's a silhouette of um, in the shadow uh, that, that looks like, you know, he has to say like Heil Hitler. But it turns out that shadow is like just the Statue of Liberty. And so like there's this really striking visual thing, like maybe these things are not as different and it's made by Disney. And so sometimes these things can be, you know, maybe not intentional, but like in retrospect, in the next century, we can read them um, in, in, in these ways. But yeah, so how does uh, culture make us accept the subjugation that we are experiencing within capitalism? And police are inextricable from capitalism. Of course, police protect private property. And we know that um, we know that maybe even intuitively, like even if we haven't thought of police that way, um, police are not preventing violence in the community, they take the report after something has been, you know, broken into. They weren't protecting people uh, from violence. They were protecting Target from being looted, right? And so we know police protect pro uh, property. And so they're not, um, you know, there's, there's no like separating policing from capitalism. Um, and so the other person I wanted to talk about is Louis Altizer, who was writing a few decades later in the, in the 70s on, um, also, you know, a Marxist theorist. Um, and so he was writing about the ways that the state, again, makes us kind of accept our position. Um, and he differentiated between what he calls the repressive state apparatuses, which are police, military, anything where it's like, oh, um, if you don't do this thing, there's some like threat of something towards you, which could be, you know, in many cases, physical violence. And that is what gets you to comply. But at the other um, apparatus is the ideological state apparatus. That's, you know, the family, uh, universities, uh, you know, so education, civil society, the church, um, the family is, is kind of the main one. But we can think about culture in this way too, right? The TV, like watching Paw Patrol, um, like as a kid <laughs> is like part podcasts of, yeah, this, right? yeah, podcasts, <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, are part of, are part of this. Well, I mean, they're the, the next kind of question to ask is, you know, is it, is it true? Like do it, you know, Adorno says all of this culture just reproduces hegemony. Um, but I think that, you know, there, there are kind of other s schools of thought that critique that, you know, it's been, uh, over half a century since since he made these claims that we have agency as viewers. So you can watch Paw Patrol and you can say, Paw Patrol gives me a vision because you have a kid, right? Have you watched Paw Patrol? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know no, of uh, it. We, I know about Paw Patrol. Uh, we have actually like whatever, put the parental controls so we don't want so that the three-year-old doesn't watch Paw Patrol anymore. Uh, yeah. Not only because it's kind of pro-cop and 
but it's also just like the merch where we have a very strong like any show that has a ton of merch out there that, that that my kid would want we usually just end up uh just shutting that off so that it's not available on netflix anymore yeah well the thing about um about the ideological state apparatuses like your parents telling you like don't you want to buy a house like and have a hetero marriage and kids and like reproduce you know the laboring class or or like reproduce you know our like intergenerational wealth, as the case may be. Um, don't you want to go to university? Like Altazir says, we choose this freely. We choose that kind of subjugation, um, you know, f- or you know, interpolation, he, he calls it, into hegemony. Like we choose that freely or we feel like we choose that freely. We choose it all by ourselves. Um, and, and culture is a huge part of this. So the other thing about Paw Patrol is that it could be a vision of like, We do want some people, you know, some people just do want their jobs to be like, I'm going to go around helping people like the Paw Patrol people aren't like these dogs aren't like mauling anybody. Right. They're not enacting violence. They're not doing the actual work of policing. They're cute little animals. No, it's it's all about rescuing people who are in trouble. Uh, It's just that the like the the cop dog has a fucking drone. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my uh, gosh. Yeah. So it gets yeah. you. So this is the way that, that, that culture here gets kids. Um, you know, it prepares kids for surveillance culture, I guess, if there's a drone in it. Um, the drone probably looks cute, right? Or it's like not menacing. Of course, it's all cute, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's not like a fucking Reaper or a Predator drone with Reaper oh. missiles on it by any stretch of the imagination, but it is still a drone and referred to as such. Um, and no, I mean, this all. I think the alter stare stuff is very interesting. Again, I'm I, I I'm a dummy. I don't read a lot of books. I, I read a lot of children's books these days. But it's like it seems like he's making the point that there is this baked in amount of kind of cultural expectations that kind of that's what gets you to kind of that that has a lot more control than necessarily like a, a policeman with a, a trench and beating you over the head. It's, mm-hmm. This is kind of like the new, more modern way of, of controlling the population rather than kind of, you know, beating you over the head with a trench, which was like the, in the 1930s yeah. style of social control. Well, I mean, ideological state apparatuses were there in the 30s too. Like we have always had culture and ideology, like mm. since we've had language, like the argument would be that, of course, language is, itself is ideological. So the way that we're talking about things is going to also pr- like privilege certain kinds of perspectives and worldviews, right? And so, um, yeah, we could say that ideology is maybe thicker now or thicker in like particular moments um, more so than kind of repression. Um, So that could be the difference between, you know, Adorno's experience of Nazi Germany um, and then fleeing to California and, you know, experiencing a different kind of way. So, of course, Adorno, again, writing decades before Altazir, but um, I think we can think about, you know, ideology is really powerful because it erases its own existence. That's what Altazir says. It makes us feel as if this is just what we want. Like, I want to help my community and I grew up watching Paw Patrol and so I'm going to become a cop because this seems like a really good way to help my community. And this is why I'm so not interested in talking about individual cops and their individual motivations because of course like some of that, like you might know a cop who wants to do good. It does not matter. Like that does not matter at all for the ways that, you know, policing itself is a, is a, you know, foundationally violent institution. 
Yeah, like the foundation of me wanting to do a propaganda episode was me uh, seeing and reacting, interacting with a tweet by uh, a former Alberta NDP candidate who was like, I just watched an Edmonton police officer buy an unhoused person a few coffees. And, you know, they treated that unhoused person with dignity and respect. Thank you to the officer for their kindness. Acts like this, quote, quote, acts like this set us apart and help make our city better for everyone. And it's like just kind of that's that good cop narrative is like, such a fundamental part of copaganda and when you even start to study like like the history of copaganda and like you know dragnet you know the original cop procedural show and and like the 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 myth of the good cop right it's like how many good fucking cops does it take to change a light bulb you know i'll I'll let you know as soon as soon as a good cop fucking changes anything right like the problem is never individual cops whether they are good or incredibly evil but it is it is a system where cops are able to like murder and dehumanize black and brown and indigenous people on a regular basis with absolutely no fucking consequences. Right. Yeah. And, um, you know, poor, poor white people too, because that's kind of how they maintain the color blindness of what is a, you know, settler colonial, like anti-black, anti-indigenous, um, institution. Um, yeah. Okay. This is a really good example of, um, these narratives of the good cop or like, look at this good cop doing this relation, like having this relationship with somebody. Um, we saw a lot of videos, uh, last summer even, um, of, and this is, you know, propaganda that is not the culture industry because, you know, Adorno's culture industry is, uh, you know, corporations that want to make money. This is the way that kind of, regular folks have taken it upon themselves to perpetuate this because we have social media now so people just filming um you know a cop like stopping a little kid and being like uh what are you doing and then it ends up being like because i'm gonna give you like an ice cream or something right that they that it's like oh like there were there, there were a few of these kind of circulating like this to say that like oh it's your problem that you think that they're bad right like you think that cops are bad but like look at how good this this cop is And I want to say something that I think is not really talked about a lot, um, and it's something I'm kind of working out, but uh, for my birthday, I wanted to do a fundraiser for a community organization, and I uh, chose Bear Clan Patrol, and I actually talked to them because I wanted to get a kind of idea of what they do, and I know that they um, have had some, like, relationships with police in some ways or, like, individual uh, police officers, and I think that... I want to be really careful as like somebody whose like class position really insulates me from encountering police in a lot of ways to say that like you should never like people um, who are unhoused or people who, uh, you know, are living precariously should never have any relationships with with any individual police officers. Um, Because, yeah, I think that like sometimes it's a survival thing. And uh, I, I just don't want to get so like high and mighty uh, as somebody who's like not part of that population. But I had a really good conversation with them about this and, um, you know, the ways that, you know, they know they know some cops who they work with. Like it's important for for that to happen on that scale. I am a theorist of racial capitalism, like the adaptations of racial capitalism. So like my perspective on like, yes, all cops are bad. Um, are because of the institution of it. But like my lived experience is not one where, you know, I'm not encountering police because, you know, I'm a university professor. 
Yeah. And I think it might be even a bit useful to just kind of like define, you know, what propaganda is and, and why it is, you know, so necessary. Right. So it's, it's, you're right. It's not just the cultural uh, stuff that we see, you know, it's um, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, for instance, is essentially a show about cops or world cops, <laughs> world superhero cops, uh, all the way, all the way down to like, you know, the the coverage of the police that you see in your uh, news sources, you know, tweets like this from this upward NDP candidate that like ended up hilariously being retweeted by the the president of the Edmonton Cop Union uh, or Police Association. Their cops aren't really. Cop yeah. Union really okay. But. I just want to say like like a good difference here between the example that I'm giving of like maybe if you are a bear clan patrol working with that, that is a very different thing than a politician who actually is in a position to do something about policy. Like they're like the politician doing that actually like perpetuates this system. Like politicians should be thinking on the scale of the system. Um, If you are part of, you know, very like small organization that intervenes an individual, um, you know, putting bodies in between cops and people cops are harassing, then you might have a different relationship to police. And, you know, I just think that it's, it's different. Like I would critique, I would critique the NDP person much, much more. Like I think they should not be saying that about, about police. Like they should not be giving this like coffee cup stories about police. So, you know, much like what uh, Nancy Pelosi's daughter said back when uh, Jeffrey Epstein was arrested. This is before he, uh, quote unquote, committed suicide. But she said in a tweet that is somehow still up that some of our faves will be implicated. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I feel like that's very appropriate for... Uh, you know, what we're going to talk about now, which is like, you know, example after example of propaganda in pop culture. And like, uh, just because, and I just want to make be clear, this is like a no scold zone. I don't think it's very effective. I don't think it's very useful to uh, yell at people for the like cultural content that they watch uh, in their like precious few non-working hours, <laughs> like whatever you laugh at, whatever you watch, whatever you enjoy. I just want to be clear that uh, watch whatever the fuck you want to watch. And I'm not yeah. going to judge you. I'm not secretly judging you. If you enjoy Brooklyn Nine-Nine or Cop Procedurals or whatever, uh, like again, I'm not, I'm not judging you. Watch whatever the fuck you want to watch. But just know that like, yeah, you got. I think any any content you consume, any culture that you're consuming, you do need to be conscious of the like, why it exists, who this is appealing to, why it was made, why is this appealing on a network owned by, uh, you know, um, uh, a weapons manufacturer, you know, mm-hmm. NBC and GE, right? Like, it's a uh, again, not a not to uh, school do, but just to educate you. So uh, the one that we kind of talked about in our little pre-interview shama was you know marvel Mm. marvel you know marvel is this uh, huge entertainment complex you know just just minting billions of dollars every year and their latest show you know falcon and the winter soldier is a really interesting uh you know like post george floyd post black lives matters attempt to kind of justify having a black captain america you know Yeah, I mean, this is that thing where it's like, oh, you're critical of society and yet you participate in it. It's like, yeah, of (laughs) course we do. So, you know, yeah, watch what you watch. But, you know, well, it's my it's my kind of job as an educator to say, like, well, at least be critical about it. Right. Um, Falcon and Winter Soldier for me. 
was the perfect 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 kind of uh series to come after um the event like capital e event of the uprisings um and police station burning down last summer and so uh you know it's the equivalent of um that happened and we get our first uh black woman uh, in the executive branch of the U.S. government who loves cops, like she was a prosecutor, you know, they're like the kind of discourse around Kamala Harris as a cop that you get a like a black woman cop um, after that. Like that is the move that it makes, right? Um, where something happens, it's undeniable. They're like, we need to do something about it, but we're going to do it in such a way that it actually like neutralizes that critique. So Falcon and the Winter Soldier, listen, I love Marvel. I would go to the Marvel movies. Like I'm a, you know, I'm that like leftist professor that's going to be first against the wall when like the fascists take over and I'm still, you know, consuming my, you know, popcorn and soda and like watching Marvel movies. Uh, so they're wildly entertaining, right? They're funny. They're like the the aesthetics of it, you know, are kind of dazzling. Um, Black Panther is like a legitimately beautiful movie that says like if you do violence against colonizers, you're just as bad as the colonizer, right? Um, but, you know, I cried when Killmonger died, too. Like, so th these things are complicated, but we need to be aware of how they affect us. With Falcon and Winter Soldier... Um, what is happening in Marvel Marvel right now, and this is the example I'm using because I think it's one that everybody knows, and it's actually, I would say, one of the most popular franchises maybe of all time. Um, and it's so successful because it does not deny that racism is happening or that, you know, colonialism is happening. Like Thor Ragnarok is, you know about like oh we're we're the baddies like asgard is the colonizer baddies um it empires are bad yeah yeah like it doesn't deny it's very different from something like a star wars which um you know again another one of my favorite marxist theorists is frederick jameson and he says that uh narratives uh, provide imaginary resolutions to real social contradictions. So after the Vietnam War, America was like, are we the baddies? We can't be the baddies. And then you see the you see something like Star Wars come up where the empire, they have accents. Uh, you know, Darth Vader is like not even human. Like they're the the empirical power. Right. But the rebels are like a cowboy and a farm boy, like the all-American. And so that's the imaginary resolution to, um, you know, the real social contradiction of like American crisis, thinking that they're the good guys when they just like napalmed villages, like they death starred Vietnam, right? Mm -hmm. So that, but Marvel I'm saying is working a bit differently. And so they are really acknowledging that, yes, like, um, you know, there was a black super soldier and he was, uh, you know, isolated, incarcerated, all of this. It ends up with him being like the solution to that is putting him in a museum and for uh, Falcon to become Captain America. And so now we have a black Captain America, which the history of the foundation of the U.S. state and the American nation is fundamentally anti-black. Like to say you have and they have that character that that, um, you know, tortured uh, black super soldiers say that no, no black man should want to be Captain America. So they acknowledge all of this. And yet 
say, well, nevertheless, like he's really going to struggle for six episodes and then accept it because he is going to be able to make a difference in this position. And this is where I think that propaganda has changed. Like, so when we talk about cops in the military, they're, they're the same. I mean, there's the, you know, uh, what Nikhil Paul saying, he wrote this book called Race in America's Long War. I know I keep giving readings, like I'm making a syllabus for the for the viewers <laughs> or listeners. But um, yeah, like Nikhil Paul Singh says, there's an inner war and an outer war. And the inner war is the war of, of policing that's like anti-Black, anti-Indigenous. The outer war are the kind of wars of empire, like in West Asia and, and uh, lots of other places. Um, but these are connected. And so, you know, something like Marvel, like Captain Marvel, um, you know, she's like, we fight, we fight to end wars. It's like, yeah, of course, like everybody thinks they're fighting to end wars because then they'll be the hegemon, right? <laughs> so, yeah. We, yeah. Are, we, we are in the peace business, you know, this, this the famous sign on the, on the military base in Dr. Strangelove, right? Yeah. Or like canada's peacekeeping missions or responsibility to protect which like violates sovereignty of other nations like you know things like that right it's like no 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 we're we're just doing all of that to be like the good guys when canada is like you know three mining companies in a trench coat right <laughs> like i mean mm -hmm. um so yeah so these shows like this new iteration of propaganda of having us accept the repressive state apparatus is very much about like we cannot deny that this violence happens, um, but we are going to find some way for the narrative itself to neutralize it. And so you can watch it and be you can feel virtuous. It, it can feel virtuous to watch something like. Um, I can't be racist. I liked Black Panther or something, right? And it's like Black Panther neutralizes the anti-colonial critique that it it also puts forth, right? It puts it forth only to neutralize it. In Falcon and Winter Soldier, the bad guys are called flag smashers. Like, oh, another book to read, Harsha Walia's Border and Rule. If you want to talk about flag smashing, like abolishing borders, she is sympathetic. She's not a, she, she is somebody who the audience is supposed to sympathize with, but then she kills people and goes too far. And it's like, no, 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 we need the law and order of Captain America because Captain America will only kill when he has to. And that's also why, you know, T'Challa couldn't kill Killamong and he had to actually tell Killmonger, we can save you. And Killmonger had to, um, you know, say that he chose death, right? So because I, the hands have to be clean of the of the like liberal like hegemon, right? I I would like to learn more about this uh, flag smashing group and uh, if they have a newsletter. I know, uh, like, I like I would like to subscribe. The subscribe button. <laughs> I would like to subscribe. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's it's. Capitalism is this incredibly adaptive, mutable force, right? And if and if black rage and black liberation uh, happens uh, or it gets becomes popular, it's going to get contained and redirected through these liberal entertainment and apparatuses, right? And like again, I'm not the smart theory guy. This is just me observing what's happening around us. But like, I mean, another incredibly popular example of propaganda is like uh, Brooklyn Nine Nine, mm -hmm. right? This is a very fun workplace comedy, very funny, like good ensemble cast. Uh, and it's like at the at the end of the day, you know, it's like cops the the actual police work is 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 not anywhere near does not resemble in any way 
what what happens in Brooklyn Nine-Nine, right? And, and and by pretending that it does, we're like we're we're buying into the to the idea that like oh yeah, the majority of like cops that the cops spend even a decent amount of chunk like of their time like actually solving crimes, which like they don't, right? Yeah, I love this example of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Um, so he. Uh, the person who created it, Michael Shore, also made some of my other favorite shows. Like, I adore The Good Place. Like, I think it's masterful. Um, it made me cry a lot. Um, and Parks and Recreation. So these shows have these, like, big ensembles. They tend to be, like, diverse, right? So, like, the the cast of Brooklyn Nine-Nine is, like, brown people and black people and gay people and and whatever, right? Women. Um, it's not just the, the like, cis hat white, white man cop. Um, I think that it's also a really good example because we are seeing the transition from that kind of colorblind representation to like representation is going to save us <laughs> in, in that kind of a show. Like, I don't know what the last season is going to be like. Um, it'll be interesting to see, but I recently saw some episodes of the first season and the way that we know that Jake Peralta is a good cop is because he has the most arrests. <laughs> right. Yeah, and so that yeah. is supposed to be the index of being a good police officer. Um, and it's like, how many like are you har- like we don't see him harassing anybody. We don't see this like, you know, you know, United Colors of Benetton cast shooting anybody. They never kill anyone. They never re- they shoot at people but, like nobody really ever gets shot. Right. It's like a vi- it's like a fantasy of what policing um, what like liberals think policing um, is doesn't, right? Doesn't Peralta like get a date with Amy Santiago by like arresting more people than her or something? I don't know. I can't they have some kind of a yeah. And so I was just mm-hmm. looking at some season one episodes, and yeah, they have some kind of a contest about that, right? And it's like girl power, right? With the with the women characters too, like that Amy and Rosa are like more. They're tougher than Jake and and Boyle, um, and so. There are all of these ways, though, that we can think about the ways that colorblind representation worked. Um, so there were all of these cop shows. I was thinking, like, in, even in The Simpsons, like Lenny and Carl, mm-hmm. like, Carl isn't really racialized, right? He's just, like, drawn kind of brown. Like, he's just not yellow, like the white people in The Simpsons. Um, so it's just like, oh yeah, they're like black cops or like fam, like, you know, we're, we're the same age. So like family matters or something, right? The dad is a cop. Like there were all kinds of like black cops and brown cops on TV, but they weren't, um, talking about being like what it, what they weren't grappling with that in the way that say Falcon in 2021 has to, to grapple with like, should I be Captain America? Um, Brooklyn Nine Nine seems like it's going to have to do that uh, in the next uh, in the in the last season, and they're just they're ending the show. Um, I mean, I mean, my suggestion for the last season of Brooklyn Nine Nine is to literally just like burn it. Tran- <laughs> no, is to is to trans transmute it to like uh, like literally any other workplace, like a fire station, a community center, a child care center. Like it could literally you just make it into like literally any other kind of workplace comedy, uh, and it would. I mean the actors are still the actors. The personalities are still the personalities. You're just no longer arresting people or solving crimes, crimes, solving crimes. Right. Uh, there's also a, like a, a foundational piece of propaganda in my life that I wanted to bring up, which is um, 
based on the like original original piece of like television propaganda dragnet which was a program on pbs called mathnet and it was <laughs> it was cops in la solving crimes through math you know educational but it was like a beat for beat uh like loving tribute to this like 1950s era cop procedural and so me as a like in the 80s early 90s as a like a young like canadian and somehow getting 1950s era like propaganda and there are some hilarious episodes of dragnet like there's there's very memeable ones about like reefer madness and shit that still that still get brought up to this day uh but like being turned into like children's entertainment you know what i mean <laughs> which is just w- wild to think about uh, uh that dragnet this like what what would the 50s be like 70 years ago now 70 year old kind of propaganda being turned into 40 years later being turned into like children's entertainment yeah so this is a great example of how um propaganda has adapted because there were those uh earlier kind of like 1970s 1980s maybe a bit into the 90s uh, TV shows where it was like the white man cop and it was, you know, uh, there wasn't really like any depiction of of the racism of policing. It was just like, look at this guy. He's so tough. He's like a, you know, that was like a superhero, right? It's glamorous, all of that kind of thing. You know, maybe the equivalent of that um, for the for the outer war would be like James Bond or those spy shows and stuff right where it's like it's glamorous to to reproduce the state uh through violence in this way right um but i think that things like we are living in a really interesting time where propaganda can't make the same moves um i'm not saying that it's not as strong in fact in a lot of ways i think that it's it is stronger for acknowledging that policing is racist and then narrativizing something out of it to say like and nevertheless you know if we just have anti-bias training like we need to um have more more like black and indigenous cops yeah hire more uh racialized and and women or whatever right that's like gender yeah um but we know that like uh you know michelle alexander says that the black police chief should give us no more um you know, no more comfort than like the, you know, black person who was like in charge of, you know, policing enslaved people like on plantations, right? That it's like actually, you know, the, her, her whole argument in the new Jim Crow is mass incarceration being in continuity with uh, Jim Crow and, and slavery. Uh, so yeah, and we know that from the Toronto example too, um, you know, Desmond Cole has has, has written extensively about you know how having a black police chief hasn't uh you know didn't change the anti-black policing in toronto and if we want to just take dive pull back from popular culture a little bit and just kind of like dive into your local news you will find propaganda just as readily right and and we're going to obviously use the example that we're located in which is like here in edmonton and, and calgary as well but like if you're listening to this outside of those cities like pay attention to like what the sun writes about when it, your local mm-hmm. sun paper, what it writes about cops, what it chooses to feature. But I think there's a really no, a really good example of like the ad- adaptive nature of kind of propaganda. Then like 
Edmonton's uh, then then the head of the Edmonton Police Association, Sergeant Sergeant Michael Elliott. And if you just want to get a like a hint of it, like go to his Twitter feed. You know, he has his like pronouns in his bio. You know, like he is his his Twitter feed is like a constant stream of like good cop. Good cop propaganda, as well as like, here are all these guns that we took off the street. Yeah. You know? And you know what? I don't know anything about him and I don't care about individuals, but he is serving a particular function to legitimize a racist system by whatever kind of, you know, quote unquote, like wokeness that he is promoting, like in his own feed. Um, yeah, and for all of this wokeness, like the Edmonton Cop Union was flying the thin blue line flag uh, on its building, like the, on the anniversary of George Floyd's death, right? Yeah, so I think this is a really uh, this is a really good example of how uh, you know social media has allowed propaganda to be per, like to be shared and perpetuated by individuals, not just this kind of culture industry that Adorno was talking about. And so there are people retweeting that like, yeah, thank you, cop, like this or that, right? Um, the thin blue line flag is violent. And, um, you know, there, there's, there's, lots, there's lots of evidence to that. But in any case, it gets kind of presented in this way as, no, 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 we're just like supporting, supporting police officers. Um, a lot of this is the inability of our culture in a lot of ways to distinguish between the scale of the individual and the scale of the systemic. Um, but I, they also uh, released a statement after that because people were, of course, angry that they were flying this, um, you know, this very threatening kind of thin blue line flag um, on the anniversary of a very high profile police murder. Their statement actually shows how fragile this is. So I'm not really one like let like let's talk about like hopefulness, but let like I think that this actually is a is a kind of way to maybe think that that hold is maybe loosening a little bit the hold that propaganda has because people were really angry about it enough for them to have to release a statement enough for this statement to be very weak and defensive. And oh, incredibly, like incredibly thin skinned. Yeah. yeah. Incredibly thin skinned. And like, yeah, like showing so much weakness by like, well, actually, oh yeah, we're we're flying it for this reason or whatever, right? And it's like okay. There's no buddy. defense of it. There's no defense of flying a thin blue line flag, except that, you know, we take the side of law and order and uh, you know, police should be allowed to murder people because they're heroes or whatever, right? Um, no, I, I mean, if you want evidence of the thin blue line being a racist and fascist symbol, the a, a Proud Boys, a bunch of Proud Boys counter protested a, a BLM rally in Calgary last summer mm -hmm. with a blue line, an American thin blue line flag in hand. And there's very powerful picture taken of these fucking Proud Boys in their stupid fucking shirts with their thin blue line flag behind a line of police on bikes. You know what yeah. I mean? Like yeah. th there is no better example of how that symbol is being used in a racist and fascist fashion than like a, now a designated terrorist organization and one that's obviously like a racist fascist street gang flying that flag behind a bunch of cops and being protected by cops at a BLM rally. Yeah. And the ways that that flag was flown um, during the, you know, storming of the Capitol. Right. And mm -hmm. so 
Yeah, it just shows how fragile they are. And that's why, you know, coming back to this idea of the capital E event that happened last summer, a lot a lot of that can't be contained. Like you cannot neutralize the burning down of a police station. Now, does that mean that, you know, the forces of liberation are going to win ultimately? I don't know, because we're experiencing multiple crises, you know, of capitalism and financialization um, and of, you know, pathogens and the biggest kind of maybe inevitable one is climate, right? And so, like, we are just going to see more of this happen and it's going to be harder and harder um, to neutralize. And I think that the weakness of that statement actually should maybe hearten us in a way. Yeah. I got two more examples of uh, local copaganda to kind of round us out uh, here, Shama. And uh, this first one is uh, a doozy. It's from uh, CBC Calgary. It's written by uh, Elise Von Scheel, who is a CBC Calgary reporter who uh, came onto my radar when she wrote a very flattering profile of Tyler Shandro at the height of the pandemic. <laughs> some some beautiful yeah. portraits of him in soft lighting, talking about how hard of a job he has. But anyways, she's written this piece that was released like literally just the other day, like tailor-made for this podcast called From Gun Purses to Police Chiefs, Alberta's History of Women in Policing. Mm-hmm. Deck, officers weigh in on the strides policing has made and the work that remains to be done. Oh boy. I mean, one of the big problems with this, with this idea that we just need more women police officers, or I have actually seen, um, I've seen sociologists testify that, you know, women are a bit gentler, you know, and so that's why, like, we'll have less violence, like, if we have more women police officers, which is horribly gender essentialist, but it's also ahistorical. If we think about policing as a way uh, to control, you know, black and indigenous people and to reproduce kind of settler capitalism and protect private property or protect capital. Um, women have been very violent in that in that system, right, for hundreds of years. And so I just don't. Uh, I, here's, a, I, here's a quote from the piece that I'm sure you will really enjoy. Quote, it's not about foot chases and who can punch someone, Wit said. Our strongest <laughs> tools always are verbal skills, and that is our best ability to de-escalate situations. And anything that you use beyond that, you get good training. You know, it's really... Uh, I'm going to go back to Althusser for a second because Althusser says one of the ways that we become subjects of ideology is that we are interpolated and like propaganda kind of interpolates us in particular ways. Like if you watch an ad that's like, um, don't you want to be like tough and strong? And then it's like, and like desired by women. And then it's an ad for Axe deodorant. That's a form of interpolation um, into like kind of consumer as a subject of consumer capitalism and, and patriarchy. Althusser's example of interpolation, though, in his in his writing is you're walking down the street and a cop says, hey, you and you turn around and um, at in the form of address there that, hey, you, you are interpolated as a subject of the law and you could be subject to that kind of, um, you know, to that repressive state apparatus. Um, of course, ideology is the examples of the, the ads. But. I, it doesn't matter if the cop can't it isn't going to hit me, right? It doesn't matter if they. It, it matters that they can. It matters that they when they address when they address you, they interpolate you as some as a subject of this whole kind of violent apparatus. And so it's just such a 
misunderstanding of how policing works that is kind of mind-blowing but i mean the most the most frustrating part about this from gun purses to police chief's story is is also that it's just like a huge recruitment ad like it's it is an unpaid like this this would be worth tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of dollars if they were to like actually try and and uh construct an ad campaign to appeal to to go out and recruit um, female recruits to to the police force but this is like why is the cbc doing the fucking work of recruiting uh cops to yeah. um, female cops or um, to a fucking system that we know we have ample evidence is incredibly racist and violent and dehumanizing dehumanizing like in its bones foundationally mm-hmm. cannot mm-hmm. be reformed right I mean, this is also a big problem with uh, liberal feminism. Liberal feminism doesn't have any kind of critique of racial capitalism, so it's very easily co-opted. You get, you know, that's Captain Marvel is an ad for the U.S. Air Force, right? And the villain is a gaslighter. Like, it's the perfect pussy hat, you know, of the Trump era kind of girl power uh, text. And it's, like, funded by the U.S. Air Force, too. Like, there's, there's shots of that. Um, of that movie that look like ads for the U.S. Air Force, and like that could be. Um, yeah, so it's, it's like you, it's a top. It's like Top Gun. It is Top it, Gun. Yeah, 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 yeah. Those those kinds of shots, but it's Top Gun now with more like uteruses or something, right? I mean, it's yeah, very gender essentialist. It, that <laughs> like, yeah, just having women because they're gentler uh, or whatever um, will will make policing better. But yeah, of course, it's it's for recruiting because like, oh, do you feel this is Rosa and Amy on Brooklyn Nine-Nine uh, that their girl power, they're tougher than the than the boys. Right. And so if you're like, well, I'm not like those girls, I'm like a tough girl. So maybe I should be a cop. You uh, make an excellent point about how easily <laughs> the kind of liberal feminism gets co-opted and, and contained. And our, I think our, our final bit of propaganda for the day is, again, uh, just a brand new, like you could just pay attention to what your local police force is doing and, and run it through this lens. But is a, a new headline just came out. Uh, this is by the CBC, but I mean, I also have the, the, the release from the cops. It's Edmonton Police Launch Unit to focus on cities' top 200 prolific offenders. And this is about the launch of a new uh, division within or a new branch within uh, Edmonton Police Services called the Diversion and Desistance Branch. And uh, like it says, it's going to concentrate on those 200 most prolific offenders. So sure. But but within the story itself, you uh, understand what what that means and essentially what it means is the the cops are hiring teams of social workers to go out and interact with these prolific and persistent offenders right the the quote in here is these are high need folks these are folks that have never had supports before and i'm saying well great let's give them supports but why why are they being given support by someone who's like by the cops like in no way are the cops the best organization to provide those supports Always behind a cop is the is the threat of the whole repressive apparatus, right? And so it's not, of course, it's not going to be um, the the way to help people. Uh, Edmonton's top two hundred most prolific and persistent. Okay, why is this happening though? I mean, there are all kinds of people who work on policing. Um, you know, I. Th- Mariam Kaba is, is probably one of my favorite who talks about how like it's really hard to murder. Like it's actually like people don't murder a lot. Like the people are not do out here doing crimes because they're bad people. That's the other thing about so propaganda 
propagandizes um, in favor of cops, but it also uh, portrays a very particular kind of villain who's just like a, a bad guy, right? Um, and they just want to do crime, like they can't get out of this kind of crime. And it has nothing to do with, you know, uh, unemployment and lack of housing and, you know, inequalities in healthcare and education. Like it has nothing to do with that. It's just like this guy's a villain or a good cop is going to investigate them and, and, and get them. And so, um, yeah, I think this is really – this is also just it has there's no like analysis of of why crime happens. And so that's why they're like, oh, I guess we just need to help them. We will do that through our whole like repressive apparatus. Yeah, it's not going after the the 200 most prolific wage thieves, you know, or like <laughs> oh my or God, bad I employers, wish. right? Yeah. It, it's going after people who get like uh, drunk and disorderly and like property crime, you know. Uh, or drug dealing, like, like low level, like that type of offense is, is what they're talking favorite, about here. One of my favorite shows, Canadian shows, is Trailer Park Boys. Mm-hmm. And they just do a lot of little crimes, right? But they're like very lovable. And so I think that it it kind of ser- serves a different sort of function. The cops are really not smart. and um, But it shows like that their poverty is like the reason that they're doing all of, all of this. Um, these propaganda, sh- like shows and also discourses like the police are doing also make legible like what is violence and what is not violence and so you know bringing up wage theft wage theft is a huge form of violence i mean that um so many people died this year we are living in a time of mass debt death and and debt and um massive increases in wealth for the already wealthy and that is a form of violence that is not made and, legible by propaganda, and and a part of this uh, diversion and assistance uh, department uh, or branch that the EPS created is within the release is this kind of incredibly troubling implication. I'm just going to read uh, just a few short sentences from this release, just so you can understand what I'm talking about. Quote: For those who want to stop offending, case plans are put in place, social workers and other supports are engaged, and an enormous team effort is put in place to keep them on the path of crime-free living. For those who continue to offend, a different team watches the offenders closely, and if the risk and if the risk of an offender outweighs their needs, this team will look to suppression tactics, which may include an arrest. This I mean, is that, it's so dystopian. It's Minority Report. <laughs> it, it, it is the fucking pre-crime division. Yeah, it's <laughs> oh like we God. know they're just committing crimes all the time, anyways. If they do, if they're not following our directions, we'll just arrest them because, like, even if they haven't committed a specific crime, we know they're committing crimes you know what i mean so there's this documentary that's now a few years old called do not resist and a large chunk of like near the end of the documentary is about um predictive uh predictive policing and the ways that they use data um and it's just very chilling there's this uh guy who kind of is spearheading it and he says that he ran like the statistics on this woman who was either pregnant or like had a had a young child and was like, well, she's a black woman of this like class position. So how do I tell her her kid is going to commit a crime because um, it is going to happen kind of thing? And it's like, oh, my God, like. So, I mean, sometimes I just despair when I hear that because it it feels like these people really buy into it. Right. And and. And a lot of money is invested. Police budgets are huge, right? Well, like 
you know, defund the police and and give people housing, right? Uh, But yeah, the police budgets are so, so huge. And it's a lot of this kind of militarization and surveillance, uh, surveillance technology that could do like, yeah, for pre-crime. I mean, we're living in a pre-crime time. Exactly. And, and I think we're coming to the end of our conversation, but I, I, I'm now legally obligated to mention the fact that I am uh, officially running for Senate. Uh, and that is a very real election with real results. And I will have, <laughs> I will have the power to implement my agenda, which in this case, uh, when we're talking about these particular problems, I think it's quite simple to just take $100 million out of both the Edmonton and Calgary police budgets and uh, just start housing people with that money. Mm-hmm. Uh, $100 million goes a long way. Uh, building houses is not very technologically complex, nor is renovating or buying up existing houses and, and simply uh, putting people who don't have homes in those houses. Sometimes, uh, you know, the solutions to our problems are complex and sometimes they're fucking not. Yeah. And sometimes if you just want to uh, house unhoused people, uh, you build or purchase a home and you fucking put it in them. And that's that's as simple as that. Yeah. So that is a solution. I mean, one of the things we can acknowledge Um, is that people think the police do something that they don't do. Like people, you know, when we say like, get rid of the police, it's not that there would be nothing after that. It's just that there would be things that would serve that that function that you think police are doing. Um, And I'm going to give another reading. um, And it's Alex Vitale's The End of Policing. And the reason I'm suggesting it is because it um, the chapters are organized by something we think the police are doing. Like maybe we think that they're preventing or they're helping with like theft or they're helping, um, you know, protect like uh, sexual exploitation or like things like like we think that they're doing this thing and that that's or and they're bad bad things are happening in society. So we need police as that solution. And he's very systemic about you know what the actual solutions um, could be that have been like tried and and uses data and stuff. And so, um, yeah, it's Alex Vitale's The End of Policing. Um, We can live together better. Everybody can live together better. Police officers, you know, if we want to talk about individuals, I'm sure police officers are suffering from mental health issues um, and, and all kinds of things that would get better if they weren't police officers. Yeah, we can keep each other safe uh, in different ways. We don't need the police. Agreed. Mm-hmm. This has been a, a fantastic and a terrific conversation. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the pod. Shama, what's the best way for people to uh, find you on the internet and follow along with what you do? Yeah, the best way to find me is on Twitter. And so my Twitter handle is at Fritz Le Chat, F-R-I-T-Z-L-E-C-H-A-T. Yeah, and R.I.P. Fritz. R.I.P. Fritz, my beloved cat. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thanks again so much to Shama for coming on the pod. And if you like this podcast, if you listened all the way to the end of this conversation and you fucking liked liked what we talked about, uh, there's a few things you can do to help us out. Uh, you can leave a review. Uh, that's very helpful. Apple Podcasts really likes reviews for some reason. Also, uh, share us with your friends and family, especially if you've got some friends and family who you've talked to about copaganda or cop shows or defund the police in the past. Um, you know, Shama, we, we pretended that we were an episode of Alberta Advantage and we gave out a bunch of reading recommendations. So please. <laughs> I can't help it. I can't help it. So <laughs> I know. No, you're a prof. You got you to do what you got to do. And the, the biggest, most important way to support us is to obviously support us with, uh, with cash money. So there's a link in the show notes. Uh, you can also just go to the progress slash patrons, put in your credit card, you know, five, ten, fifteen dollars a month, whatever you can afford. Shama's a supporter. Shama has not regretted it once. No, I'm sure. Never. No, I'm just saying. 
And uh, and that's that's the pod for today. If, if you have any notes, thoughts, things you think I need to hear, I'm really easy to get a hold of. You can reach me at uh, Duncan K at progressalberta.ca via email. And I am on Twitter uh, too much as well at, uh, at Duncan Kinney. Uh, thanks again to Shama for coming on the show. Thanks to Cosmic Famu Communist for the amazing theme. Thank you for listening and goodbye. <laughs>